Hi, I'm Dr. Sam Bars. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where we explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK, with a range of expert guests. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Education and Youth. The Centre for Education and Youth believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at cfey.org. I'm here with Loic Menzies, our Chief Executive, and uh, Loic, somehow you've managed to, I was going to say, evade the podcast for <laughs> the last two years or so. I'm not sure it's deliberate, I'm not sure. I'm Definitely not, sure. not deliberate, I promise. <laughs> okay, well, for whatever reason, you've, um, you've yet to make an appearance, but we've managed to... Uh, What's the, I was going to say, what's the cricketing term? You've broken your duck. I mean, we should, <laughs> you we should snared me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and here you are now, which is, which is excellent. And we've just come out of our team meeting. We're here on a Monday at the Ship of Adventures, which you've been calling home now for about five years, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Five and years. So that, that was a big momentous occasion when we arrived here to call this our kind of physical home yeah. um, as a bunch of home workers who didn't necessarily <laughs> see each other very much. We lost our digital nomads <laughs> status <laughs> slightly. Yeah, we're, still, we're now only kind of partially nomadic. Yeah. Um, and five years on from that, to celebrate our our 10th anniversary, we've just had our, uh, what we were tentatively calling a rebrand, and then we've kind of thought of other words to describe <laughs> that as well. Um, we've looked for another word, I'm not sure we found We haven't found there. one yet. And we're going to be talking a bit about that. Um, in a few minutes' time, but we've yeah we've just had a very, a, what feels like a very kind of momentous year in our mm. organisation's history, and that's why we wanted to talk to you to reflect on the last ten years we've had as an organisation, take a look at some of the big things going on now, the things facing us and facing the sector, and also look to the, the future of it too. Yeah, so it's a good time for great that. Great to have you. Yeah, it definitely is, and it's great to have you here to to talk about it with. We launched our report a decade in the making yes why did it have that title so it was a nice combination i guess of a decade you know it took us we built up over a decade to reach the point where we were able to bring that kind of group of people together i think so we had the, i think the group of people we had contributing were really interesting diverse mix that represent the range of work we do so people not just from schools but also from uh, the youth sector from community organizations as well as really high-profile people like Her Majesty's Chief Inspector, as well as young people. That kind of combination marked what I think we've built over the last 10 years. So it was about saying, okay, well, we've been a decade in the making, but also this sector has changed a lot. When we started out a decade ago, you know, Gove wasn't yet in office and a whole, whole range of reforms we've seen over the last 10 years had yet to come in. It felt like quite a good moment to look back on that. But also then to do the, you know, the two-part name, a decade in the making, what next for young people in England? Uh, to ask what might happen over the next decade and where where might we be then. Mm. Do you think, or do you get the sense that we're at any particular key turning points at the moment and do any of those come out in the report? Yeah, I think the the contributors to the report, it was really nice to see that after a decade of quite some quite technical changes, we're returning to some more fundamental questions about about power and justice and and how, how that needed to shift um, if we were to address some of the more fundamental issues in the sector. And do you think there's been any progress, any meaningful progress on that in the last 10 years? 
Yeah, there was definitely recognition of that from all quarters in people's pieces. And so ranging from um, one of the young people who wrote in the report, Yatunde, talking about her school being a, a real shining star for her um, and how that had impacted on her life. And it was nice to see, you know, that's a school that has been set up in the last decade um, and that's impacting on her and her peers in some really profound ways. And then at a policy level to see Amanda Spielman of Ofsted accepting a lot of responsibility for some of the things that have gone in the pa- wrong in the past, but showing that things have changed and that there's a, there's a new framework in place and a new approach um, that will hopefully rebalance our system slightly away from some of the perhaps reductionist quantitative metrics that, that sometimes dominate. And even you know, Emma Hardy, who's an MP in the opposition, was acknowledging that in her piece. And alongside that, at community level, we saw people talking about really small initiatives in their communities that are helping in small ways and people taking ownership of trying to improve things in their community. So it was nice to see that it was, a, it was an optimistic and positive piece, uh, whilst at the same time recognising that we need some fundamental shifts too. Mm. We kind of once again demonstrated the power of having a young person on a panel when you were talking yeah, about totally. youth education issues, and that's something may, where maybe things are still a little bit slow to change. A lot of us in the team go to conferences and events um, where we're talking about young people and there is still not that frequent that you'll see a young person on the panel or young people in the audience to put yeah. their perspectives. So that was another reminder of something that we find is really, yeah. really important and we will always champion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that helps to make things that bit more real as well. I think it's very easy when we talk about some of these questions to talk in the technical ways that because these are complex things, right? So we talk about things with lots of acronyms and lots of things that can distance a lot of people from the reality of how some of these decisions play out in, in people's lives. And it's hard to get right. It's really easy to have one very articulate young person who claims to speak on behalf of all young people and actually it's a mistake to think everyone agree all young people agree or have the same perspectives but there's also a benefit in terms of them being able to kind of give people a bit of a reality check and step past past some of the nonsense now that's a really important point have you considered any of your own perspectives on the issues that are raised in the report having read all those kind of those pieces in the mm. report or from any of your, the chats that you had at our birthday party last week yeah. did you come away either from the report or from the launch itself and, and the chats you had maybe with a slightly different perspective on things that you that you, you thought you knew about before mm. but then you learned something new because sometimes that can happen can't yeah, you? You, know, you, you bring people together to ruminate on a particular issue and in yeah. the process you realize that maybe your own perspectives have changed yeah i think so i think I guess there's something around kind of agency, how you can create systems that try to lead to a change, or you can create the conditions where people are able to create those changes themselves. So, I mean, I come back quite often to how, for example, school leaders need to take a stance and say, well, we don't care if we're being told that we should be doing X, because we know what's right by our communities and by our, our pupils. And I think a lot of the pieces in that collection reminded me or, or made me realise how some of the kind of disempowering of people then then played out in, in people behaving in bizarre ways that aren't necessarily in, in line with their, their true motivations and values. Mm, really interesting. In my mind, one of the something that that comes out over the last 10 years is that in many ways that if you look at policy, for instance, there are some grand narratives around more autonomy for schools mm. and for teachers, but you'll speak to many practitioners, they might feel that they have less autonomy in mm. some ways. It's sometimes I feel like it can be hard to locate like the centre of gravity and on something mm. like that because actually the 
the average result can be yeah. really quite neutral. Like for instance, there was some, a really cool study came out recently from Education Data Lab looking at teacher workload over the yeah. last 20 years and actually loads of it hasn't changed at all despite yeah. all the measures that have been introduced to try and tackle workload. Mm. For instance, mm. you, you get an impression of churn and change, but actually on, on average, things can actually be where they were a decade before. Yeah, but I think it's about a kind of autonomy over what so we tend to think of things as just like on a continuum do people do we need more or less autonomy mm. or is it actually about well have we what are the things people want autonomy over or, or what are the bits which you do need to keep standardized or it was, it's been interesting doing field work for example in um, australia and new zealand recently where they have a huge degree of freedom over curriculum a very non-prescriptive curriculum and how teachers have ended up kind of clamoring for further guidance and and support in understanding like what progression in the subject looks like, for example. And so raising the question of, okay, so maybe that's not what people want autonomy over. They might want autonomy over how they teach, how they do things day to day, but they might still want some guidance over what they're covering, for example. Where does that ca- um, go on a, on a spectrum of autonomy? Yes, yeah, so I think it's about maybe thinking a little bit more more about where where that autonomy is and you know that I think the part of the reason people are so frustrated about workload is because of a sense of pointless workload there are things that actually can take up loads of time that you really enjoy as a teacher so I used to organize loads and loads of trips when I was a teacher and I certainly never resented the fact that I was staying in school late to organize a trip because it was a thing I really wanted to do and I got such a buzz out of it whereas I would massively resent spending a quarter of that much time marking books if I didn't feel like it was a use, good use of my time. So that kind of, and it just ties back to questions of purpose, doesn't it? Mm. And despite the fact that we've grown as an organisation and in terms of the amount of stuff that we're, we're generating, <laughs> the insights that we're generating, the amount of activity that we're involved in in the sector over the last 10 years, you still find a lot of opportunities. You know, we all know in the team that you know, you're out there doing field work <laughs> as we are and... I've noticed how often you'll come back in the same way that we will and, you know, an interview you've had with a teacher that they were chat you've had with the people in a school is a really useful kind of anchor um, and can, you know, it can shift your perspectives Mm. or remind you of the importance of the things that we're working on. If ever you're having a week where you're so busy on the other things, sometimes (laughs) you can begin to forget how crucial they are. You're right, a lot of the penny drop moments happen when you're in a school and when you're talking to a pupil or a teacher certainly do less field work than I used to. And that was a difficult win for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite hard to encourage you to try and begin to disentangle yourself from some of, some of the field work. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's why it's still really important <laughs> kind of hear from you guys what you're finding out when you're out there. Because I think for us, it's one of the strengths of our, our work as an organisation is that we're out in so many different regions of the UK so regularly. There is no way we would ever want this to be a London-centric organisation or an organisation that spends its time looking at spreadsheets. We need to be meeting the practitioners and and the young people and that's the way we do that is by doing that field work and that's often what then we come back and say actually so I've worked out that this is the thing we need to do our next piece of research on because this is what's actually bothering people. Mm. Some of the biggest pieces of work that we've got going on at the moment are either international in their perspective or very much not London-based. Yeah, I think it's really important. Yeah. In many ways, we feel like a bit of a divided nation at the moment. I guess that's always a claim that you can levy um, at our society, but it feels like it's, it's also it's party conference season at the moment, mm. so some divisions kind of come to the fore. What sorts of divisions do you think 
but which of, which of those divisions do you think are most significant for young people at the moment? So I think for young people in England at the moment, life looks very different depending on, on where you're born. And so a poor young person in London's life is very different to someone in another part of the country and less, has got less going on and less opportunities. So I think that geographic question is really important. Mm. But that is all underpinned by poverty too. So I think that those divisions are enormous. And that is, yeah, that's pitting communities against each other. I think uh, the kind of divisions that people, people in the education space debate are not necessarily ones that matter on the ground so much. So we, you know, the education commentariat is very concerned about it. It's battles on curriculum, it's battles on knowledge and skills, it's battles mm. on, on discipline. And whilst those all play out in various different ways in schools and in, in communities, I think they, they can seem very abstract. And what's our role there? often talk about us as kind of a what we call ourselves the centre for education and youth because we're a hub and we, we exist to connect what's going on on the ground up to policy level and back in the other direction to connect what's going on in the youth sector with what's going on in the education sector and to connect practice to research and evidence so I think that role as a bridge is really important so to be able to inject another side of the story in every situation that we find ourselves in so um, I'm going to be at Labour Party conference tomorrow and Conservative Party conference the next week. And it's important for me to be trying to find common ground there. Like we will be talking about school exclusion in both of those settings. Centre for Education and Youth have got a long record of working in that area and understanding some of the drivers behind school exclusion. And we see it in the, in the young people we interact with in interview. We've interviewed kids who are affected by those issues. So to be able to share those experiences that young people have been generous in sharing with us, with the people who are making decisions, is really important. But also knowing what the concerns of the sector are too, because having taught myself in a school that was plagued by decades of violence and difficulty, I know how sometimes the some of the kind of more idealist perspectives you get can feel like they're at odds with that reality too. Trying to find a way of navigating between those what can seem quite competing pressures is really important for us and, and being honest about how complex that is and being able to question some of the easy answers that are put out there. Mm. And do you think that sometimes people can appear to have very different views on one level but agree on some of the fundamentals? Is it about identifying where people have common ground or where's the best starting place when you're yeah. trying to generate that kind of constructive discussion or whatever you might want to call it? I think that you really, you can already start to make progress once you acknowledge the complexity because I think that when people just say this is the answer and that's not an answer that chimes for the other side then that immediately makes it hard to listen to each other and quite polarising. At the same time I think acknowledging that education is deeply political and that there, there will be areas that people disagree really strongly on, but being able to do that in a, in a civil way. Sure, and given our role as a hub, as you, as you just described, where are, the, where are the lines in the sand, or are there points where we hold values as an organisation, mm. or there are certain policy levers, for instance, that for us are just kind of off limits, yeah. or, or explanations for what we see around us, in society that just aren't, aren't tenable or, or hmm. um, is there any of that for us? Like for instance, and it feels like until relatively recently there was a lot of discussion of grammar schools Yeah. and so when Theresa May was new in office it was very high on the agenda, yeah. potential kind of expansion of grammars. 
and that provokes quite a lot of discussion in the sector about what the purpose of grammar schools is and if yeah. they're even effective at achieving that yeah. purpose which for me was interesting because it was uh, it was a case where we had a very clear sense of whether they were yeah. going to be yeah. an effective or useful lever or not. But a good question there is what would it have taken what would it take for us as an organisation to feel like we could be supporters of grammar schools, right? So if someone pr could present me with evidence that disadvantaged peoples benefited from grammar schools and that that was convincing evidence and that they benefited not just in terms of academic attainment but in terms of a wider development and that somehow that builds build a more cohesive and tolerant society then I would find it hard to articulate a case against. It's just quite clear that grammar schools are fundamentally not going to do that. Mm. So I, I mean we do, I think we pride ourselves on being pragmatic and whilst as yeah as individuals we'll each have our compasses for things that are that we would just fundamentally object to but i guess so yeah i mean even in what i've said there there's 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 underpinning values to that right which is about an egalitarian, egalitarianism and and justice and you know young people's interests and support, supporting the most vulnerable and so on so yeah those are the guiding principles i think whenever we have a discussion where we disagree on the team we share those principles, but so do, there's a broad church of people who believe those things. And so then the discussion becomes a pragmatic one about to what extent various different things would contribute, contribute to or detract from those ends. And that's where there's, there's disagreement, right? So mm. there's lots of things we might blog about, for example, on our website, where one person on the team will one, think one thing and one person will think something different. And that's fine, and we'll publish both of those on our, on our blog happily. Mm someone would need to be able to make the case that this was beneficial to the most vulnerable and I think there's some things where it's impossible to make that case so you know, that's why you know, prejudice or discrimination and so on are never going to be acceptable because they're by definition uh, unhelpful. Yeah, they're just odds with that. Yeah. Yeah. And for me that comes back to our, our mission statement or our core aim as an organisation mm -hmm. which is that society should ensure that all children and young people make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. And that has always been our aim and still is, even though we're mm. now called something different. It's yeah. still there at the bottom of, yeah. of the paper that our report <laughs> is, is printed on. Yeah. No rebrand ever goes completely to plan. And on one of the banners at um, the party last week, I noticed a small <laughs> yeah. typo. Paul, poor Gemma, I think, noticed it really uh, when, when we got all the banners back and missed everything that she had to do. The typo is that, um, that society should ensure that all children and young people should make the fulfilling transitions out of it. And without wanting to come across as too contrived, for me that was quite an interesting example of how like a typo and it can yeah. cause a subtle shift in meaning which can actually be really significant. Why might that have been quite a significant <laughs> typo? Like yeah. the idea of young people making a fulfilling transition mm. to adulthood versus them making the fulfilling yeah, transition yeah. to adulthood. Yeah, I think it something incredibly prescriptive about saying the fulfilling transition to adulthood is if there was just one way of doing that and that it was the same for everyone. But yeah, I think it's, for us, it's really important that young people experience a really broad range of options. We meet lots of very different young people and with very different experiences and even with it amongst ourselves and everyone we meet in life, we know that different people want to pursue different life plans, as you might call it. And I, I sometimes talk about the idea of everyone being able to write their own life story. 
people may want to do all sorts of different things that shouldn't be limited by background or, or, or the experiences that a young person's had in their childhood. How can we maximise the basket of experiences and opportunities uh, that, that young people have so that they can make as free a choice as possible? As long as you are giving them what, they, what will allow them to make as free choice as possible, unconstrained by their circumstances, then it can be a fulfilling transition to adulthood, rather than ever trying to shove anyone down one particular route. Mm. And what sorts of things have we championed over the years that remind people of that? So, for instance, re- remind people of the need not to just focus on young people's educational attainment while they're going through yeah. the education system, but other things. What sorts of things have we championed? Yeah, I think a good example is I really enjoyed doing work on the school residentials, where we were really lucky because we got data on a vast number of school residentials, as well as a load of survey data, and we were able to actually see whether there was equitable access to something like a school residential. And lots of people will have incredibly fond memories of the school residentials they've been on, and many young people are exposed to opportunities they might not have had otherwise. And to see how starkly divided access to those things was by socioeconomic background was a big reminder and I think quite an, an easy way of articulating and demonstrating the different things going into different young people's baskets of experiences. That was a, that was a really powerful piece of work in terms of being able to do that. Mm. And to go back over a decade to before you founded the Centre for Education in Youth, one of your roles as a teacher was to teach citizenship. Yeah. And that still comes true in a lot of your thinking and a lot of your perspectives on issues now and you often Mm -hmm. talk about it and you still reflect quite critically on it and the the current state of citizenship education for young people. Why do you think it's as important now as it ever has been and what what do you think is the current kind of state Mm -hmm. of play with citizenship in schools? I think that's quite a good way of looping back to those themes that came out in our decade of making publication actually around power in society and equality. If we want to be able to equalise power in society more, then we need to be able to be giving our young people the knowledge and skills to navigate our democracy, to navigate the information that they're receiving and the media about the political situation, empowering them to get involved in some of the community initiatives, be able to initiate change in their communities. So all of those, all of those things provide a, a rebalancing of power, but rely on, on young people under, understanding how their society works and how they can, can be active citizens within that. So yeah, I think if we're concerned about an unequal distribution of power, then to me, citizenship is a really important part of that. And I mean that in its widest sense. So you know, not just learning about the constitution, that's one part of it, but also learning about environmental issues, learning about activism, learning about how to get their voice heard effectively. You know, it's, it's not fair that some people are better able to articulate what problems there might be in the community and therefore able to, to get things resolved better or be able to be more active agents in changing it. So yeah, for, for me, we need to equip people to do that and, it, and it, it, I think it brings, you, it brings you alive as a democratic citizen if you can understand more about your society. And for me, studying sociology this has helped me studying sociology and teaching sociology I remember saying saying to my classes in sociology look when you look around you in society and see people interacting and see see what's going on 
studying this subject will help you understand what's going on behind the scenes and why things are happening the way they are. And so, to me, citizenship is an introduction to all of that. Mm. And lastly, I think something we all feel from time to time is that in the kind of work that we do, being consistently critical, not necessarily in a negative way, but critical in that we're continuing to push and strive for things to improve in the way that they need to improve, um, looking for solutions that haven't been found yet, or generally adopting a critical lens on things so that we can support people to make the decisions that will improve things for, for children and young people. It can sometimes be difficult to reflect on what might be moving in a really positive direction, mm. or looking back over the course of the last decade, for instance, can you identify any really quite categorical positive shifts either in policy or in the kind of lived reality for young people where you think we can we can really say that's that genuinely does feel like it's in a much better place than it was in 2009 yeah ultimately i do have to say i think it's it's about mindsets as much as as tangible things so i think we see a shift in mindset amongst young people through some of for example the kind of climate um climate activism at the moment young people taking ownership of what the future might look like and recognising its potential impact on them and being active in campaigning on that and doing something about it. I think there's a shift in mindset at a kind of policy and public level around educational inequality. I think I remember when we started out, a lot of the work to do was about showing that educational attainment was different depending on your socioeconomic background and so on and like hammering that message home so that people recognise that. And I think people are more aware of that now. So I think most people working in this space will say that one of the things they're seeking to do is to close that gap, whatever that might mean. That was not a foregone conclusion before, but that was what people were seeking to do. And at least now you can take that as your baseline. So in terms of finding that common ground we were talking about earlier on, when you were trying to reconcile contrasting perspectives, at least you can sort of argue from that principle now. And that comes partly from being armed with so much better information. Now, when we started out, there was, there, there was so little information, so little data when it came to education. You know, we didn't have EPI, we didn't have, the data, we didn't have data that Chris Cook at the Financial Times, as education editor, was fighting a fairly lonely fight in using the NPD to tell the big stories, mm. the National Pupil Database, using that to tell the story of what was going on in the sector. So, you know, we were quite, it was a lonely space, whereas now more people are turning, turning their attention to, to these issues and doing so in skilled ways with better data. Now, obviously, you know, we can, now, that we're, now that we've put the microscope on things, we also see the, the errors and the gaps in, and, the, and the failings of those methods and, and that data, but it's certainly a considerable step forward. Mm. And who knows where we'll be in another 10 years, perhaps we'll come and do another yeah. podcast. Yeah. Or whatever the chosen medium is of the day, <laughs> people are still listening to podcasts. Um, in time on a passion look, you still haven't had your lunch and it's getting on for 3pm. So every Monday the rest of the team <laughs> have to work quite hard to encourage you to just have a little breather and have some lunch. So that's hopefully the next thing on your list. You've got to uh, earn your lunch, right? <laughs> you probably have for today. So yeah, thanks very much for your time. It's been, it feels to me like the the best way possible to kick off the new Centre for Education and Youth podcast. Yeah, bring it on. Yeah, absolutely. We're looking forward to it all. We should try and make it a bit less than two years next time we have you on. Maybe, that'd be good. (laughs) (laughs) We love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, 
subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you're listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.